the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfon. What's going on, Cash? We're a couple weeks into the season, man. Things are starting to take shape. We're kind of getting an idea. You know, obviously very early, sample size too small to make any sweeping observations, but we're kind of getting an idea of what teams look like, how they want to play, what coaches want from them. And uh, last week, we used that small sample size, an even smaller sample size, to evaluate uh, and talk about some of the teams, players, trends, whatever, that have impressed us the most through the early stretch of the season. This week, we're going to flip that on its head and be negative Nancys, Debbie Downers. I can't think of a male equivalent name right now for what we're going to be this week. Pessimistic Pauls. There you go. (laughs) Rather than celebrating the teams impressing us to start the season, we are instead going to dump on the teams who have disappointed us. And not really dump, but also try to figure out why they have disappointed us and uh, what's leading to it and perhaps what can change it. So why don't you start us off, Wolfon? Tell me, which Fugazis out there are you ready to light up? <laughs> I'm not ready to light anybody up. This is all just about observation and things that are, for the most part, probably going to change over the course of the season. But just some things we've noticed and maybe some red flags. I did want to say, and I'm not, you know, nobody's taken victory laps in November, Cash, but I did wake up this morning and open up the Western Conference standings. And what did I see? A beautiful sight. Three Northwest Division teams in the top five. So off to a a rousing start on that front. Uh, Loving what the Timberwolves are doing. Loving what the Thunder are doing. Obviously the Nuggets, as we've said, just a well-oiled machine. Just, Just a quick note on the Nuggets. So they lose Jamal Murray probably out for the rest of the month. Oh no, maybe this will be like their first bump in the road this season. Yeah, their first game without him, they turned an 18-point deficit into a 20-point victory while Jokic cruised to a 35-point triple-double. And in their second game without Murray, they beat Golden State. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honestly, the, the depth for them was the big concern I had coming into this season. And even acknowledging that any concerns with them were kind of picking nits because they looked on paper like the most complete team in the league, maybe them in Boston, but like, yeah, so far their depth has not been an issue to the point that they can lose Jamal Murray and be totally fine. You know, uh, Julian Strother in that game that you alluded to where they erased that big deficit against the Pelicans was unbelievable. And last night it was pretty much just their starters getting it done. But in general, Christian Brown, as I mentioned on the last episode has really impressed me. Uh, Peyton Watson, Connor Gillespie, like these guys are are stepping up and contributing, and it's been really nice to see. Uh, but negatives, of course, are we allowed? By the way, to because in the in the time that it took between our last episode and this one, one of the teams that we actually cited as being impressive has turned into a team that has become disappointing because the Pistons, who are two and two at the time of our last recording, are now two and seven. Uh, the shine has certainly come off of their early season competence, I guess. Although I think, for the most part, the things we said about their young guys showing some progress have still mostly held. Yeah, Cade's continued to 
look pretty good. Jalen Duran's continue to look pretty good. So I guess we'll we'll hold off on calling them a disappointment. Uh, but I just thought it was funny that like, how quickly the worm turned on that yes. one. As it tends to do in Detroit. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, we also said it's like, this is, we got to get this in now because we might, <laughs> we might not have an opportunity to laud this team in the future. And uh, I didn't expect it to happen that quickly, just based on how they looked in those first few games. I didn't think they were suddenly going to lose five straight, but are six straight even now? No, they're two and seven now. Uh, yeah, not great. Um, but I guess I'll start with the Bucks, And this is going to sound weird because the Bucks are five and two third in the Eastern Conference right now. But I think that their losses have been much more concerning than their wins have been impressive. They've like squeaked out narrow victories over some not very good teams. And granted, they did beat the Sixers on opening night and the Sixers now look like a juggernaut. So that looks like more of a quality win maybe than it looked like at the time. But then it's like, you know, squeaking out wins over Detroit last night. I know that was, you know, Giannis got ejected for, I guess, like dunking the ball too enthusiastically or something. It was pathetic. Like that official should be fined. Squeaking out a win over like a really undermanned Heat team, over a Knicks team that's really struggling, over the Nets, over the Pistons, and then just getting demolished by the Hawks and Raptors. And like their defense being bottom five in the league. I think it was even last I checked, it might've even been bottom three, which is just, I, we knew that there was going to be a different shape to this Bucks team. They were going to win in a different way. Like they changed the construction of the team such that they were going to have to win with offense rather than defense. But even so for them to be in the bottom five of the league is kind of crazy. And even on the offensive side, as much as like there are, positive indicators there and in the sense that like they've been hovering around the top 10 despite the fact that they haven't yet built any kind of synergy between Dame and Giannis still some kinks to iron out on that side of the ball but I I guess yeah the the defense I just didn't think even off the bat acknowledging how much it was going to change and how much they had to figure out given the the dramatically different personnel I don't think I expected that it was going to be quite this bad. Um, and I, I mean, there's a, a lot of, I guess, explanations for that. One is that they decided they were going to start Malik Beasley, which I feel like is a mistake. Like Beasley has been a, a clear minus defender for his entire career. He's pretty bad on the ball and like really bad off of the ball. And they are making him like their designated perimeter stopper. He's getting like the number one perimeter assignment every single night. And then on top of that, they start out the season playing this much more aggressive defensive style where Brooke Lopez is up at the level or he's blitzing. And, you know, behind that, I think, first of all, Giannis has just not been good. Like by his standards, honestly, he's been awful defensively. And in terms of like, him being the helper who could maybe kind of patch things up behind Brooke when he's coming out to the level. He just hadn't been doing that. Like his rotations were a mess. He didn't seem to know where he was supposed to be. He was blowing rotations or he would like rotate and then abandon his help assignment. That happened a lot. 
but then a lot of the time it's like the the guys who you would have as helpers on the backside would be like Dame and Malik Beasley. Like they're just so small and it's not really leaning into their strengths to, to pull Brooke and sometimes Giannis <clears throat> away from the basket where they have thrived over the past few years. And I'm all for experimenting with stuff. Like this is the, like one thing we were critical of Bud for for years was like, you know, yes, you have this system that clearly works in the regular season, but you're not getting reps doing anything else. And then when the playoffs roll around and you need to adjust, you haven't built up those muscles. And I think what he actually started to do a lot better toward the tail end of his coaching tenure was work some of that stuff in. The year they won the championship, they spent the regular season experimenting with a lot of defensive coverages that wound up helping them in the playoffs. But to basically go with this as your base didn't make a lot of sense to me. And, you know, Adrian Griffin, to his credit, took his players' advice and reverted to playing drop. And they've looked better since then. But even that is just like, we knew it wasn't going to look as good than playing drop because they're not getting nearly the same kind of rear view pressure with, you know, Dame, Malik Beasley, guys like that chasing over top of screens versus Drew Holiday, Javon Carter. That just makes it so much harder for for Brooke and for Giannis. Um, gives them so much more to have to clean up on the back line. But I mean, I, I'm offering all of these caveats and excuses for them because it's new. They're trying different things. You know, the Dame bomb got dropped on them like two days before the start of training camp. And it's going to take time. But it's been worse than I expected. So in spite of them being five and two, and that you could say, hey, despite all this weirdness going on, the fact that defense hasn't been good, the fact that Dame and Giannis haven't clicked offensively yet, we're five and two. That's a positive sign. Just watching it, I, I can't help but feel disappointed by how scattershot it's all looked. It's hard to evaluate coaches in general because there's so much we just don't see and don't know. And Adrian Griffin is like two weeks into his head coaching career. So I don't want to dump on him too much. Like, I, I get what you're saying. And I agree that it, it's a credit to him that he wasn't one of these coaches that comes in, you know, has his system, is so stuck in his ways that even when it's not working, he sticks with it and says, no, like, this is what, how I want to play and we'll figure it out. Like when his players went to him and said they wanted to go back, when the results were disastrous, he reverted back to the defense that Milwaukee has really thrived with but I would say it's a red flag that you know less than two weeks into his head coaching tenure with a team that you know is very much one of those kind of like finals or bust teams his players even had to go to him and ask him to go back to the defensive system that he wanted to fix or overhaul that wasn't broken in the first place like just because you're a new coach or just because you're a team's new coach doesn't mean you have to overhaul everything. Like if something works and you inherit personnel like Brooke Lopez and Giannis Antetokounmpo, maybe stick with the defensive scheme that maximized their strengths and had this team elite defensively for like a half decade. And yeah, you could have done that and it still would have got worse because you've got Damian Lillard and Malik Beasley at the point of attack instead of Drew Holiday, but it would have been a hell of a lot better than what they did for the first two weeks. And like, a, the decision to start Beasley in the first place, as you already noted, and I think we mentioned like right at the beginning of the season was weird to say the least. It's, you know, even if you want to talk about like the shooting, I, I didn't really think they necessarily needed that much more shooting in the lineup. And there are other players on this team that can shoot and defend better than Malik Beasley. The general defensive change 
Like I remember when they were uh, when they were getting demolished in Toronto, and yeah, there were some jokes that oh maybe they were out late the night before and uh, you know white Vegas. They looked white they Vegas looked strike drunk again. that game without a doubt. Right, right, and we don't know what happened before, but it didn't look great. But still, even aside from how lethargic and out of sorts they looked defensively, at one point I turned to friend of the show Will Lou and said, well. This overhelping defense looks familiar because, of course, Adrian Griffin was one of the top assistants on Nick Nurse's staff, and I believe actually was kind of like the defensive coordinator, um, you know, under Nick Nurse, who, as we all know, really believes in a ton of ball pressure and overhelping and relying on his players to then have to like cover a lot of ground to scramble back and get back to three point shooters in this. So, in in addition to all of that and how silly it was to start Beasley and compromise your already weak perimeter defense and to change this defensive scheme that put further pressure on those guys when they're already not good defenders and took Giannis and Booker away from their strengths, it also led to, you know, mid-30s Brooke Lopez having to cover way more ground than he should have to cover. Like, it just, all in all, didn't make much sense. So it's like, yeah, I'll give him credit for reverting back when he realized it didn't work and his players were telling him but it's also like what were you thinking that you thought that was going to be how you put your best foot forward with this team like it it just didn't make a lot of sense to me and the offense still doesn't look great um I know you wrote about it already and like kind of maybe some of the reasons why that Giannis Dame two-man game hasn't quite gelled yet I'm a lot less concerned about that just because I I almost I, I can't see a way they don't figure that end of the court out with those two guys and the way I think their skill sets complement each other. But defensively, I definitely have more questions than I did at the beginning of the season when I thought, you know, they'll they'll be an elite offense and the defense will maybe slide from being elite to like middle of the pack averages and that'll still be fine. I didn't anticipate it sliding to where they're one of the worst defenses in the league. And I didn't anticipate that a guy whose reputation was as a defensive coach would come up with a game plan that was, quite frankly, so nonsensical as Adrian Griffin did to start this season. Yeah, I refer to it as the the Nate Bjorkren trap, where somebody from the Nick Nurse coaching tree goes somewhere else and tries to apply those same defensive principles to a roster that is not really equipped to execute them. And I, I will credit Griffin... Unlike Bjorkren, who never really figured that out over the course of his first and only season in Indiana, for recognizing that an adjustment needed to be made and, uh, you know, be, being willing to maybe abandon something he came in the season believing he was going to be able to do. I, I do want to speak to the offense a little bit just because, yes, that hasn't been the problem for Milwaukee. They're 11th in the league. But I do think it's important because if their defense is going to remain a problem, which I think it will, like they're, I don't think they're going to be 26th for the entire year, but I don't think they're You know, the, I, I think their ceiling is something around league average, right? Which puts a lot of pressure on their offense to be elite. If they want to be a actual championship contender. And on that front, I do think it's a little bit concerning that we haven't even really seen flashes of, how deadly the Dame Giannis pick and roll or two man game can and should be. One of the things is just like the volume, like they haven't run it a ton. Um, these stats are going to be out of date now. I haven't uh, been able to check them since the Pistons game last night, but before that game, Giannis has set 52 ball screens for Dame across six games, and that ranked 44th in the league among all pick and roll pairings. And they'd run 
nine dribble handoffs together, which ranked 69th. And that just seems way, way low to me. But then also, like, they're only scoring 0.88 points per possession on those pick and rolls, which is obviously not very good. And so, yeah, you, you mentioned I wrote about it. I wanted to kind of look into why that was happening. And I think the big thing that it made me realize is that I don't think I really reckoned with how big an adjustment this was going to be for Giannis in terms of like Dame gets screens set for him like five, sometimes 10 feet above the three-point line, right? The idea being that that gives him more space. If the defense is dropping back, he can stroll into pull-up threes or he can rev up for drives, which I've always said he's a really underrated driver, give him more space. And then if they blitz, he's able to make the pass to the screener, and then that screener has all this space to work with in a four-on-three. But Giannis has never really done that before. On top of just not being an especially good screener who has never been a guy who's like set, you know, 20 or 30 ball screens a game. When he has been the roller in pick and roll, most of the time it's just been as a finisher. And I, I wanted to look this up. I don't have access to this data, but fortunately I, I have a friend who does and he was able to look it up for me because my eyes were telling me when he's running pick and roll with Middleton, it's way more effective. He's getting way more finishes at the rim versus when he's running them with Dame, the tags are always coming early. They're loading up on his roles and he's not dealing with them particularly well because as much as he's grown as a playmaker over the years, he hasn't really had to do it in that context in like the four on three, catching the ball on the move, have to make an instantaneous read, like sometimes 20 plus feet from the basket. And with Middleton, it was like close to 1.4 points per possession when they were running pick and roll because the majority of his pick and rolls with Middleton, he's setting the screen below the uh, below the three-point line. And with Dame, out of those 52 ball screens that he'd set, 50 of them were above the three-point line. And I think that is just something that he's going to have to figure out how to do is like the four-on-three thing that has not come maybe as naturally to him as I expected that it would. So that was just one of like many issues that they're having kind of getting on the same page. And I do think that's going to smooth out over time, but I think there are some, you know, legitimate red flags that can't be completely ignored. And the fact that, um, again, this is before last night's game, but with Dame and Giannis on the floor, the Bucks had a 103.1 offensive rating, which is worse than the 30th ranked Grizzlies. So just some things to keep an eye on there <clears throat> in spite of the fact that they're five and two and have overcome some of these issues to win games, which is all that matters at the end of the day. Uh, I, I still come away feeling a little bit underwhelmed and yes, disappointed by the Bucks so far. You mentioned um, how you didn't quite reckon with the adjustment. This would be for Giannis. I almost argue like for me, the same thing, but for Dame, like, yeah, I knew he would have to take somewhat of a step back compared to what he was in Portland, obviously, but like his usage rate is still high, but it's his lowest in nine years. There are games where like, it, it, it's like he's disappeared for a half that game in Toronto. I mentioned, I think he took like nine shots all game. There has to be a way where Damian Lillard can adjust to not being, you know, like the single thing in an offense but still get his you can't have Damian Lillard taking nine shots and I'd argue that really other than opening night when he looked you know like typical Dame and helped Milwaukee pull that game out over Philly other than opening night we haven't really seen Damian Lillard look anything close 
to being Damian Lillard until Giannis Antetokounmpo fo- uh, got ejected from that game last night. Again, I I know there there was always going to be an adjustment period. I still feel like the offense will end up being good, but the defense really worries me. And you know, you've made some great points about the offense and the reasons that perhaps should be worried about that too. Yeah, and to the Dame point, another thing I pointed out in that article was that he has never, you know, in the same way that Giannis has never played with the guy who's getting blitzed thirty plus feet from the basket before. Dame's not really used to playing with like a legitimate lob threat. Think about all those years he spent playing with Nurkic, right? A groundbound short roller. It's a completely different thing. And I pointed out a bunch of instances where Dame is just missing lob reads to Giannis that were kind of right in front of his face. Again, I think with more reps, that will come. But yeah, I, I, again, just the, the defense has been the biggest concern so far. And I think at some point they got to make a starting lineup change. Like it just makes sense to have Marjan Beauchamp, I think, in with the starters. He's looked to me like by far their best perimeter defender so far this year. And they're distinctly lacking in athleticism. And Beauchamp is one of the few guys they have on the roster who can actually give that to them. So I just think that makes sense as a, as a starting lineup change. And even if like, you know, the idea was, hey, Beasley is going to give you all this spacing. It's going to make these two-man actions so hard to guard because you have nobody that you can really help off of. Beauchamp is shooting the ball really, really well also. And I don't think you lose too much on that front, especially considering that you could also use him as a cutter in ways that are potentially more effective than you can do with Beasley. So that, that to me, just kind of makes sense. Um, because it's not, first of all, it's not just their half-court defense that struggled. They are by far the worst transition defense in the NBA right now. Dead last in transition frequency allowed and efficiency in transition allowed. And that was something that we saw last year as well. Like we started to see the age, the lack of athleticism start to catch up with them last year. Their transition defense really slipped from where it had been at in previous years. And now it's like, a real big problem. Yeah, you know who didn't seem to catch those trends last season was Adrian Griffin because he took Brook Lopez out of drop. And yeah, I'm with you. Beasley has to be out of the starting lineup. And uh, I look forward to that happening when the Milwaukee Bucks players tell Adrian Griffin that that's what needs to happen. All right, you uh, ready for my first disappointment? Yeah, the Bucks defense was also uh, one of mine, but you ready for my first official one of this yeah, episode? Please. So the last time I brought up Austin Reeves on this Mm. show, you specifically said you didn't want to talk about it. And that's because both of us had quite a bit of, I don't know, what would you call it? Take investment in him. You wrote about him during the off season. You had a great piece about how he was one of your like interesting players this season. And we talked about him on the swing players episode. I brought him up because I genuinely believed that he could be good enough soon enough to give the Lakers like somewhat of a big three when healthy. Now, one, you could argue, well, they just haven't been healthy. Jared Vanderbilt hasn't played yet. Gabe Vincent and Rui Hachimura have each only played half the games. But also, LeBron and AD have been in the lineup every game except one uh, game AD missed. So really, this team should be fine or should have started the season well enough if the players that were in the lineup largely played the way we expected them to. But Reeves has played nowhere near that level. Now, just strictly numbers-wise, he's averaging 13.1 points, 4.4 rebounds, 4 assists, 1.5 steals, which is 
about the same as last season, if not slightly better. But his efficiency is way down. His two-point percentage, which it's still solid for a guard, it's at 51%, but it was at 62% last year. It was at 54% as a rookie. So again, still solid, but not his standard. He's shooting 27.8% from deep after almost 40% last year. It was 39.8. Now it was 31.7% as a rookie. So it's possible last year might have been something of a shooting mirage for him. Like it's possible maybe... He is just a league average, slightly above average-ish three-point shooter as opposed to the elite one he looked like last year. Now, a big thing is that his free throw rate is way down. Like, last year, he was taking .54 free throws per field goal attempt. So, essentially, for every 100 shots he took, he was getting to the free throw line 54 times. That was eighth overall last season and second behind only Jimmy Butler among non-bigs. This year, that's down to 0.292. Huge drop. All of which, like, you know, helps explain why he's less efficient. Not getting to the free throw line as much. Not shooting it as well, especially from deep. My question for you, Wolfon, how much of this do you think is simply just a guy not hitting his shots and it's seeming worse than it really is because, as I've talked about before, you know... A slump at the beginning of the season just seems worse because it's your baseline for that season. It's what your averages and your numbers are as opposed to if he just had this same eight-game shooting slump in January, say. So how much of it do you just think is that, a guy in a shooting slump that otherwise is fine, or how much of it when you've watched Austin Reeves this season do you think portends a bigger issue perhaps? is you know There's something process-related when you watch him that concerns you. Yeah, that question for me just comes down to to what extent are the shooting struggles, the you know struggles to finish inside the arc, how much of that is sort of bleeding into the process stuff because it's making him press and force the issue a little bit? Because when I watch him, the decision-making is kind of haywire. And the thing that kind of jumped out to me, even apart from the shooting woes and like the steep decline in efficiency that we've seen, as he's taken on these increased ball handling reps, increased pick and roll reps, the turnovers have been a big issue. Like his turnover rate, I wouldn't say it's skyrocketed, but it's definitely gone up. And I think he's kind of telegraphing a lot of his passes in spots, just being a little bit sloppy with the ball. And I just don't know how much of that is like, he's not cut out for this role where he's handling the ball as often as he has been versus he's in a bit of a cold funk and these things tend to have a snowballing effect, but ultimately he's going to be able to pull himself out of it and he'll look like the guy that we saw last year. That's something worth keeping an eye on. Um, but yeah, it's it's been really rough. And I mean, the point of him being a swing player is it could swing in either direction. So yep. if he'd looked like the player he was last year, I think the Lakers would be looking pretty okay right now. But the fact that he has regressed as steeply as he has, at least in these first couple weeks, has the Lakers looking really wobbly. And so I didn't have Reeves specifically on my list, but I had the Lakers offense because, and a large part of that is Reeves, but I just felt like, you know, coming into this year, there was a universe in which I could see them being a pretty decent offensive team at the least. And that hasn't been the case at all. They're 28th in offensive rating dead last in three-point percentage. Uh, and it's it's like they've 
kind of built this roster in such a way they got all these other ball handlers, right? The idea being, hey, LeBron's going to turn 39 this year. We need to have a lot of supplemental creation so that he doesn't have to carry this heavy burden on his own. And, you know, I guess the idea coming into the year was that he was going to be on a minutes limit so that he wasn't going to burn himself out. And he's blown past that so early. He's already up over 35 minutes a game. And to drag the Lakers to a three and five record. And that's the thing. Like it's yes, he isn't handling the ball as much, right? Like their offense, it's been a lot of D'Lo. It's been a lot of Reeves. You know, they're, they're trying to make Max Christie a thing and that hasn't gone well. He's been kind of disastrous so far, but they're still so reliant on LeBron. Like the most reliable source of offense for them right now is like LeBron playing volleyball in the post you know, sometimes LeBron running pick and roll with AD, but mostly just LeBron running in transition. And with LeBron on the bench, their offensive rating is 88.5. So the idea behind this roster of like, yeah, we, we don't have to be as reliant offensively on LeBron as we have been in the past just has not come to fruition at all. And I just think, you know, between D'Lo and Reeves, I feel like a lot of it has come down to just like, poor decision-making a lot of the time. And also, look, I, I think this is way, way more a personnel thing than it is a tactical thing. But I do find watching them that their offense isn't very imaginative. You know, it's like a lot of static post-ups, static spacing around pick and roll. And I, I don't know how much, you know, spicing things up a bit with more weak side action would change that. But like there was a possession in the game against Miami that jumped out to me just because it was not something that I'd seen the Lakers do very often, but it was, um, I think it was Reeves and LeBron running a, a middle pick and pop. And then from like the weak side slot, basically Cam Reddish makes a 45 cut right as LeBron's popping, which is like a very normal cut to make. Cut being a diagonal. Yeah, exactly. It's just like a, yeah, a diagonal cut from the wing because Tyler Hero had come over to help on that LeBron pop. And so Reddish is just cutting behind it, which is either like going to give LeBron uh, a passing opportunity to somebody slash into the rim or Kyle Lowry guarding the corner. He has to slide over to tag that cut. And then there's an open skip pass to the corner. But LeBron wasn't expecting that to happen. He passed the ball to the wing and there was nobody there. It went out of bounds. Like, cause he was expecting the static spacing where nobody's moving. And I think that's a problem. You know, it's like, it's not fair to compare it to the Nuggets, but like compare it to the Nuggets where all of that stuff is just second nature and everybody knows when the cuts are supposed to happen and it's completely ingrained in their collective psychology so they can make those reads instantaneously. Whereas like LeBron's just expecting guys to be standing in their spots and that's not his fault. I just think they, there needs to be a little bit more dynamism in their offense as well as like guys just need to play better. Yeah, that's for sure. All right. Who you got next? Man, we got to talk about the Grizzlies because... Yep, had them on my list. I think everyone would. Even though we knew this was going to be a struggle, no jaw for these first 25 games, Steven Adams done for the year, Brandon Clark probably done for the year, very little front court depth, I still would have expected them to be better than 1-7 at this point. And look, they're dead last in offense. Maybe that part of it makes sense because you think about the fact that they were 22nd in first shot half-court offense the last two years, 
and they're now confined to the half court way more often because of no jaw. Also, they're worse in the half court because they don't have jaw there to break defenses down off the bounce and create advantages. But playing in the half court... Or Steven Adams to create space with his screening and to give them extra opportunities with his offense. Well, that's the other thing. So like 22nd and first shot half court offense the last two years, and now they're playing in the half court way more and they're getting only one shot way more often because they don't have Steven Adams there to create second chances on the offensive glass. So they've gone from fifth to 21st in offensive rebound rate. And they only fell to fifth last year after Adams got hurt. They were with him healthy. They were either first or second. And they've gone from first to 17th in transition frequency and from first to 19th in paint points. So you're just seeing all of these things catch up to them. And it's like the guys who are there who are supposed to be kind of the bedrock and carrying them are actually doing their jobs. Like Bain's been really good. Jaron Jackson's been really good. Marcus Smart's been really good. But outside of that, they've gotten very, very little. And again, John Conchar has been out, you know, like on top of all the injuries that they are already dealing with. Uh, And that's just like, man, they need all the front court depth they can get. John Conchar being out might not seem like a big deal, but it kind of is. Santi Aldama, I feel like missed a bunch of time and only came back recently. Zaire Williams has been, you know, thrust into this role that he still just doesn't seem quite ready for. Uh, Xavier Tillman, I don't know if he was just like out of the rotation or if he got hurt as well, but he was starting at center. Then suddenly it was Bismack Biombo. Like they're, they're reeling right now on the injury front, but even with the guys that they have healthy, I felt like they could have been better than this. Luke Kennard, by the way, who like couldn't miss after they got him at the deadline last year, like literally hit more than half his threes as a Grizzly, hasn't found his stroke yet. And that's a big problem for a team that struggles to space the floor as it is. Yeah, Luke Kennard has led the league in three-point percentage, I believe, each of the last two seasons. So yeah, I, th- I think, look, when they get like, as they get healthier, a lot of this stuff will improve. But I-, I still think it registers as a disappointment just given how ugly it's been so far. I mean, one in seven, even... Like they're fourteenth and dude one in sorry one in seven with losses to the Wizards yeah. and Blazers already yeah. and the there. Wizards one wasn't close by the way, <laughs> no. um but yeah they're they're fourteenth in defense and that feels disappointing to me like thirtieth in offense kind of like yeah maybe we could have seen that coming I would have expected them to be better than fourteenth in defense even with the injuries that they've taken uh, I don't have like a good explanation for why that has happened to this point like again I think Jaron's been really good. Smart's been good. Like, I don't know. Um, I mean, I just, I guess, like, yeah. losing Steven Adams, that's a big deal. Their rebounding has yeah. tanked. And in terms of just, like, having a guy who takes up a ton of space, uh, being without him, you know, at both ends of the floor has obviously been uh, been a big hit. Yeah, I lost a lot of my faith in this team once Steven Adams was shut down. Like, I literally a week before Steven Adams was shut down, my unfiltered episode that week for the Scores YouTube channel was all about why I thought the Grizzlies would survive and maybe even still thrive in the first 25 games without John Morant. And I went from that kind of faith in them to then Steven Adams gets shut down for the season before a game has been played and me thinking, okay, now they're going to be in a dogfight for their lives. But even still at that level or lack of faith, 
I still thought it would be way better than this because who didn't? Like I said, one in seven with losses to the Wizards and Blazers. As you mentioned, that Wizards loss wasn't even close. And it's funny because like one of my notes uh, under my Grizzlies thing here in prep for the show was don't even think Triple J, Bain, and Smart have been bad. And as you like mentioned, yeah, like they've been good. It's not, If someone had told me, you know, or like kind of shown me into the future and said that, that this is how these three guys will play over the first eight games, I'd be like, they'll, they'll be fine. Grizzlies will be fine. But They've gotten nothing else from anyone else. Yeah, the defensive part of it is where I'm really surprised because, sure, the offense was always going to be a slog, especially once Adams also went down. But this defense should be a lot better. Like, you've got the reigning defensive player of the year. You've got the defensive player of the year from two years ago. They've got, like, the the perfect kind of inside-out combination defensively with Marcus Smart and Jaron Jackson Jr. You couldn't have asked for anything better than that. And again, I think they've been good. And yet... Like, this is what it is, and I, I'm with you where I don't really have an explanation for it other than, you know, one, Steven Adams definitely was more important to this team's success and even their jawless success than people gave him credit for. And other than that, I don't know, like, are they finally paying for years of maybe overachieving a little bit with the talent at hand? And like regression is hitting them hard at the worst possible time because they're also missing two of their most important players. Like, I don't know, but it's been bad, man. And sure, it's early and there's 74 games left and they're going to get jaw back at some point, but they're already one in seven. You cannot get buried in this Western conference and live to tell about it. And they're burying themselves right now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think they're buried yet, but they need to, they need to get back on track pronto. And I don't I don't know how they do that without without getting healthier. And I just, it doesn't look like any of that is really on the horizon right now. So I don't know. I guess it's just a question of their depth pieces having to step up and be better. And the guys you mentioned, that trio, somehow having to be even better than they've been so far. Because like, even, even, you know, Steven Adams on offense, I talked about like the offensive rebounding, the screening, how that helps. But they've also over the last couple of years, run a lot of offense through him at the elbow, you know, dribble handoff, split action, things like that. And you see them trying to do that with Jaron and even sometimes Marcus Smart being the guy who's kind of orchestrating from the elbow. And it just does not work to nearly the same extent without, I mean, it's like, you know, you you come off of a screen from Jaron Jackson and it's just not going to hit you in the same way that it does with Steven Adams. And then Jaron isn't the playmaker that Steven Adams is, frankly. It just doesn't, it doesn't have the same kind of impact. And I think they're just struggling to find the things that are actually going to work for them offensively on top of, you know, not being as good as we anticipated them being at the other end of the floor. I've got two left after some of our overlapping ones. So I'm going to do one before the break and we can do one after it. So I'm going to ask you, do you want the one that's pretty much all negative or do you want one of my negatives that actually ends with some positivity? Uh, Let's do all negative. Let's just... Really okay. get down in the muck here. All right. It's got to be Julius Randle and the Knicks, but mostly just Randle. Look, if the first couple weeks of the season are any indication, this guy just is not capable for whatever reason of putting two good seasons together. You'll remember he had a really down year after his first stunning All-NBA season. Well, it's happening again after his second. But this is what happens when, as we've mentioned countless times before, your effectiveness is very closely tied to very streaky jump shooting. And what happens when you're a player whose overall effort is dictated by what's happening on the offensive end. And for Randall, 
nothing has been happening or falling on the offensive end. Putrid does not explain Julius Randle's performance on the offensive end through eight games. His shooting percentage through his first six games was the worst of any player since 1959 to start a season. Now, he's been better, not the most efficient, but better his last two games, and so he's upped his numbers. He's now shooting 31.6% from the field on the season. He's averaging 16.5 points on about 20 shooting possessions per game. 35% inside the arc, 26% from deep, 67% from the free throw. 29% of the rim, Cash. Explain that one to me. That is insane for a big man. That would be insane for a little man, let alone for someone as large as Julius Randle in the NBA. Now, as far as I can tell, using basketball reference stat finders, player span finder, if you take the first eight games of any season and look at players who've attempted at least 17 shots per game as Julius Randle is doing this year, Randle's true shooting percentage of 42.1 is the 17th worst ever And the worst since, funnily enough, Allen Iverson, 22 years ago, when he was coming off his MVP season in that finals run, which is uh, hilarious. The actual worst true shooting percentage over the first eight games of a season while shooting at least 17 times per game belongs to Pete Maravich in 1974. Now, for both Hall of Famers, for both Maravich and Iverson, unsurprisingly, The two seasons in question ended up being their least or second least efficient years of their career. So it's not really like those guys turned it around that season that much. Now, I know it won't last at this level of wretchedness, but still, you know, we can continue to have fun with small samples here. Randall's effective field goal percentage of 36.8 right now would be the worst for a guy shooting this much for a season, again, since 1959. A man by the name of Woody Salisbury. And I'm going to go out on a limb, Wolfon, and say that if Julius Randle is going to shoot like Woody Salisbury, the Knicks are in trouble. Yeah, can't say I had R.J. Barrett as being the Knicks' best offensive player two weeks into the season. This is actually one of the things I, I noted in um, Wolfon and I did this really big piece uh, that we do every year, like 10 observations from the first two weeks of the season, but I actually threw like a bonus observation at the bottom, much shorter than the rest of our blurbs. And I wrote, there's like some sort of supernatural force that prevents RJ Barrett and Julius Randle from shooting well together or ensures that one of them must always be slumping. Because this is how it's worked in New York since these guys have played together. And yeah, Barrett's in the midst of arguably the hottest shooting stretch of his career. Meanwhile, Randall and Brunson, to be honest with you, are building a house full of bricks at MSG. 50 players right now are averaging at least 15 shots per game. Of those 50 players, Jalen Brunson and Julius Randall rank 44th and 50th, respectively, in true shooting percentage. Yikes. Um, I will say... So coming into this year, when we were talking about the Knicks, I I had a hard time figuring out what to do with them because nothing about last season made sense to me where they were third in offense, but 19th in defense. And I felt like that should have been flip-flopped. And what do you know, Cash? So far this year, they're 23rd in offense and second in defense. So in that sense, it does seem like things are right back where they're supposed to be. And I would argue that there is... A silver lining here, which is that, look, they're 4-4 and with a positive net rating. 
I don't think the defense is going anywhere. And like huge shouts to Mitchell Robinson, who I think has looked fantastic at that end of the floor so far this year. You know, bunch of other impactful defenders on the roster, Quentin Grimes, Josh Hart. Like, I think they're going to be a good defense, but I think the offense is definitely going to be better. Like Randall's not going to shoot 29% at the rim all season. Even Brunson has really struggled from two point range so far. Maybe RJ Barrett won't be as good as he's been, but I think there's room for improvement at the offensive end, whereas I think the defense is going to remain very solid. So ultimately, I would come away feeling more optimistic than pessimistic about the Knicks, given the way the season has started for them. Um, But yeah, to your point, if Julius Randle continues shooting like, what was his name? Woody, what now? Woody Salisbury. Woody Woody Salisbury. Salisbury, Then uh, yeah, maybe the offense won't improve. And this is going to continue to be a very mid team. But the defense has shown me something. I'm, I'm impressed by what they've done at that end of the floor. And I'm anticipating the offense improving at least somewhat as the season progresses. Yeah, but I'm also anticipating a very mid team because as I've dubbed them before, Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle and RJ Barrett are the mid three. Indeed. Okay, so we'll take the break there then. Yeah, let's take the break, come back and get to the last remaining of our uh disappointing players teams trends and maybe still hit on a few positive ones that we didn't get to last week what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts you can also check out the scores fantasy football podcast with justin boone and in case you haven't already download the score app available on iphone and android that's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores updates and breaking news And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, where are we going next? Who's disappointing you this fall? So this one is like real specific. And it's one where like if you zoom out and take the whole team and everything that's happened with them into the picture, things look pretty good. Because I'm talking about Trey Young. And the Atlanta Hawks in my mind, have looked really good. And a lot of the reasons that I was optimistic about them coming into the season have very much borne out. I think it's looked a lot smoother with DeJounte Murray in year two there. Quinn Snyder in his first full season definitely has started to change the offense in a way that makes it more dynamic, makes it look more like a Quinn Snyder offense. They're running more split action from the elbow, more Spain pick and roll, got more movement in the offense in general. Jalen Johnson having a huge breakout, probably the best bench in the league. Like all these things are looking real solid. They're fourth in offensive rating right now. Uh, and, and with Trey, I think there are some things to commend him for as well. Like I think he's working harder defensively than I've ever seen him work. Like genuinely his, look, he's always going to be a minus defender. Just, you know, the physics of the equation kind of dictate that he's going to struggle at that end. But in terms of like the effort he's putting in and the awareness, his defensive rotation is genuinely the best I've ever seen from him. And he's always going to be a positive impact offensive player just because of his passing. But in the midst of all this good stuff that's happening in this kind of redesigned, restructured Quinn Snyder offense, there is still this issue of Trey off the ball that I don't see as being resolved at all right now. And there, 
there are like a couple things they're doing to unlock him a little bit more where they're getting him like mid possession touches, you know, Chicago action coming off of pin downs, taking handoffs, things like that, getting him the ball on the move. I like that. But when he gives the ball up, it's still so much chilling, like out of frame near half court. And I know that can be beneficial if you're pulling a defender out there with you, then the rest of the team can play four on four. They have more space, but there are times when a possession will grind down. Somebody will get kind of like stuck in the corner or stuck under the basket. And it winds up being a turnover because Trey is not making himself available as an outlet at all. And I just think like getting him more engaged in those possessions is still really imperative and it's not happening. But even stuff as simple as like when he drives and kicks, a lot of the time he's not then relocating back out to the three-point line. He's like lingering in the paint with his defender there. And sometimes when he's like the lone shooter in the weak side corner, something as simple as when the pick and roll is being run on the other side of the floor, shaking up from the corner to the wing to make it more difficult for the low man to tag and recover. Like that's just a basic thing that a lot of people are capable of doing. And I don't really understand why it's so difficult to get Trey to do it. I don't know if it's a lack of willingness. I don't know if it's fatigue from all the on-ball possessions that he's commandeering. I don't know if it's, you know, maybe, maybe it's a feel thing where for some reason, a guy who reads the game at an insanely high level as an on-ball playmaker, just doesn't have a sense for how to move when he doesn't have the ball. I don't know, but for whatever reason, in spite of all the good things that I'm seeing from the Hawks so far, that one thing continues to really irk me. And it's showing up in the numbers too, because after all these years of them not being able to survive offensively with Trey on the bench, they're actually significantly better this year offensively when Trey doesn't play. And I don't know if that's going to continue, but I do think the off-ball stuff and his kind of unwillingness to participate in the more motion-heavy aspects of their offense has something to do with that. Yeah, and I'd say the concern for me is that, like, or the red flag for me is that these issues are still creeping up, not even creeping up, like they're glaring issues, despite him now playing in an offensive system led by Quinn Snyder. Like, if he's not going to move off the ball in a Quinn Snyder offense, he just isn't going to move off the ball, like... So, I mean, I don't really have much to add to it other than that. But on the whole, I agree that the Hawks have been pretty impressive to start the year. And Jalen Johnson, who we were both high on you especially, has looked really good. Um, so there there are definitely positives to be found. But yeah, I, I don't think Trey Young is just ever going to be that guy when the ball's not in his hands. Yeah. Hasn't helped also that he's shooting 37% from two-point range and 27% from three. Yeah. That part of it's obviously going to improve. But... So far, DeJounte Murray has been the best hawk, and I don't actually think it's been particularly yep. close. Agreed. But I do have a little more faith in Trey Young's shooting bouncing back than Julius Randle. Fair enough. All right, my last one is the Cleveland Cavaliers, but this is the one I was saying that actually ends on a positive note. So the Cavs started uh, the season with injuries. Darius Garland and Jared Allen were out. Garland's only played four of eight games. Allen's only played three of eight games. Mitchell's uh, missed the game as well. And Donovan Mitchell, for the most part, is playing great on the offensive end to keep them even close to afloat on that end. But just generally, they were off to a very uninspiring start, especially for a team that we came into the season saying could challenge for a top two, if not the number one seed 
in the Eastern Conference. But this is one where when I actually sat down and watched more of them to prep for this episode, especially watching their last few games when they've had all of their, you know, four best players in the lineup, even though they haven't necessarily been winning at a better rate, I've been encouraged from what I've seen and the numbers match the eye test because in, you know, obviously a tiny 42 minute sample now, but still within 42 minutes together now to start this season, when Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen are on the floor together, the Cavs are at plus 15.5 for 100 possessions with Struess in there with them, which is their starting lineup now. And, you know, with all of the shooting and spacing benefits that come with having Struess there that we talked about all off season in 36 minutes together, that lineup is plus 19.6 per 100. So I'm going to say if this team stays healthy as they get more reps and games with their best players on the court more often, if Donovan Mitchell keeps playing, you know, anywhere near this well offensively anyway, they're going to be fine and maybe not top two fine, or even three, given the way Philly is playing, honestly. But like, if healthy, despite the three and five start and some concerns, you know, the defense has slipped a bit, whatever. They're still a top four team to me in the East pretty easily. Again, if they're healthy, that can make noise in the playoffs. The biggest thing at this point, now that they've got their guys back, is that their bench still just stinks. Like, they don't really have much outside of those five guys who play really well together. Yeah, and I think something that really hit home for me watching them play the Thunder last night is this deficit that they have on the wing is still present. Not that they don't have good players on the wing. They just don't have any two-way players on the wing. And so Isaac Okoro didn't play in that game. He was out with an injury. So it's not entirely fair to judge based on this. But if the idea was we can't play offense with Isaac Okoro on the court with our two non-spacing bigs. So let's go and get, you know, Max Struess and George Niang. I just, philosophically, it still is a, a problem because watching that game last night, it's like you've got now Karis Levert or Max Struess guarding Shea Gilgis-Alexander and he absolutely lit them up and it's like, okay, if, if Okoro was there, then that would be Okoro's assignment. But then you're running into the same offensive issues that you had before. And it got to the point where in crunch time, Mobley was the guy that they asked to be the primary on Shea. And so I still just see that as being a structural flaw. Like as much as they address the shooting on the wing, the lack of two-way balance there, I think is still something that's going to bite them uh, unless or until they find a way to properly address it. So that's kind of my big, my big takeaway from where they're at right now and, and what they looked like last night, I guess, specifically. You got any more disappointments for us? So one more that I had, and I I feel less strongly about it after last night's game, which admittedly I was focused on other games. So I didn't watch the entire thing. I just caught like basically half of the third quarter and then all of the fourth. But I was going to say the Raptors' use of Pascal Siakam had been super disappointing. And then I feel like finally last night they figured out that, hey, just getting this guy more regular post touches and elbow touches where he can face up and attack mismatches one-on-one is actually going to be pretty beneficial 
even if it doesn't entirely fit within the vision that we have of our new offensive system, because like, yes, the, what, what Darko's doing is more than just, Hey, 0.5 basketball, let's make quicker decisions and get the ball moving, which they are doing. It's also like they, they want to run their offense in a particular way with guys moving and cutting and screening away from the ball and making plays out of horns and elbow sets and things like that. And like, you know, I, I get that, but it's also not entirely playing to the strengths of the guys on your roster, especially when you have this two-time All-NBA-er who's running around off ball as if he's some kind of movement shooter as opposed to just getting him touches in spots that are advantageous to him. And I feel like in that game against the Mavs, they were just like feeding him the ball on the block, getting him mismatches. And like, you can play 0.5 basketball out of that because if he's got a mismatch in the post, he can draw two to the ball. He's really good at making reads out of double teams. And then he can get the ball popping and make quick decisions from there. But you got to create the initial advantage in order to get those swing, swing passing sequences popping. And up until that game, I don't think they were creating enough of those initial advantages. And a big part of that was that they weren't using Siakam optimally. They were using him as like a spot up shooter, sometimes as a cutter, but like often as a movement shooter that wasn't actually moving the defense at all because the defenses just didn't care about him coming off pin down or a ghost screen action or a horns flare action. They were like, okay, we'll just let that be. And if he hits the three, he hits the three, but they still weren't you know, moving the defense, spacing the floor, anything like that. And it was really having, having a dampening effect on Siakam's production. And a lot of that was on him too. Like there were like, he wasn't finishing well at the rim. He wasn't shooting the ball particularly well for mid range. He just needed to be better. But I think there can be a, you know, a meet in the middle aspect of this where he plays better. They get him the ball in the spots that are most beneficial to him. And those two things sort of feed off of each other. And I think that meet in the middle uh, brand on the offensive end where they are allowing Pascal Siakam, who you mentioned, a two-time All-NBA to hunt and exploit mismatches, especially in the post, while incorporating all of these new wrinkles and the movement into the offense that Darko wants and also getting out in transition. So, like a blend of those things is the recipe for this team being passable on the offensive end, which when in conjunction with how elite they can be and have been on the defensive end, especially in half court, is a recipe for a good season and a good team. Last night against Dallas was the most encouraging game of the season for the Raptors because of that fact, because it looked like they are willing to explore a blend of those things on the offensive end. Like they ran Milwaukee off the floor at home and some may say, well, that was the most impressive result of the season. But as we mentioned, the Bucs just looked weirdly out of sorts in that game and not to take anything away from the Raptors, but in that one, I'm more impressed with what they did in Dallas last night because of the way the offense looked and specifically the way they maximized Pascal Siakam. And the reason I'm so encouraged by it and the reason I don't think it was just like a one-off is because Michael Grange of Sportsnet uh, wrote a great piece about Siakam's role in this offense after that game against Dallas had a couple quotes in there from Darko leading up to that game where he talked about, you know, knowing that they needed to get Pascal more involved and wanting Pascal to actually be more aggressive with his own driving and shooting and advantage creation before getting into the other stuff of the offense. And Darko says, uh, going into that Dallas game, 
I think we're going to start seeing it tonight because he's like, they've been, you know, drilling it and he's been saying that's actually what he wants. And then you saw it. And so because it does seem like Darko still wants that stuff and, and they're on the same page with it now. And he had that kind of game right after Darko was saying those things. I'm pretty encouraged and optimistic that, okay, you know, not that Siakam's going to have 31 every night now, but that Pascal Siakam will be able to be something closer to the guy who has made all NBA teams, who has been, you know, a very important player on very good teams. Because I do think if they have him doing that, while the offense is a little more fluid around him, it's a recipe for success overall. We both just turned our last negatives into positives, I suppose. Well, yeah, again, like I had that as my negative before last night's game. And you would hope to see that be a, you know, a sign of things to come and and a, a turning of the corner. Because up to that point, I think the process had just been not great. And the results had obviously not been great for a guy who, again, was coming off an all-NBA caliber season and is you know, playing for a new contract because the team hasn't decided whether it wants to extend him or trade him yet. So uh, th- these are these are all important things that are that are going on uh, with the decisions that have to be made in Toronto right now. And one more, you know, while we're on the sort of positive note with the Raptors, I do just want to point out, so they're 29th now in half-court offensive rating, which... Moving on up, They, they have surpassed the Portland Trailblazers cash in half-court offense. But... I think a really important takeaway for me from this season so far is that they don't need to create all of these turnovers in order to fuel their transition offense. And I feel like that was a big sort of philosophical sticking point with the Nick Nurse era where they were playing this hyper-aggressive defensive style. And I don't think he ever like actually came out and said this. It was more just something people intuited through common sense. But I think part of that was the idea that their half-court offense was going to be really bad, and Nurse recognized that and his staff. And so part of the philosophy behind their defense was it's going to help us fuel our offense because we need to get out in the open floor. So they've gone from being first in turnovers forced to 19th, and yet... They are still basically the best transition offense in the league. They're fifth in transition frequency and first in transition scoring efficiency. And I think what we're seeing is actually forcing misses and running off of defensive rebounds can be just as effective as forcing turnovers as a means of getting your open court offense going. And to that effect, they have gone from being 29th in opponent effective field goal percentage, which for a team with OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, Jakob Pertl, Fred Van Vliet, uh, I don't know who I'm forgetting, Scotty, Scotty Barnes, who wasn't great defensively last year. Uh, part of that had to do with his defensive role. <laughs> but a team with that kind of defensive personnel being 29th in effective field goal percentage allowed is insane. And I just, I think we all watched it. We all know that a big part of that was the fact that they were throwing so much pressure at the ball that they kept getting burned on the backside of it. They were creating a lot of turnovers, but there was a trade-off. And now they're creating fewer turnovers. And as a result of them kind of scaling things back and just being more solid, letting their really good individual defenders defend individually instead of putting themselves in rotation time after time, they're second 
in opponent effective field goal percentage. So their defense has been way better and their transition offense hasn't suffered for it basically at all. Yeah, I thought last night against Dallas was actually a really good example too of you know some of the changes defensively where, yeah, sure, they're still sending extra bodies at Luka Doncic, but it's much more dependent on where he is on the floor, where he's catching the ball, what the initial assignment is. But if OG Anunobi is on him and Luka has not caught the ball in a really advantageous position, they're letting OG Anunobi, who has been like, you know, through 10% of the season, a defensive player of the year candidate, and we all know is one of the best defensive players on the planet, they're letting him go to work and do his thing without automatically sending that second, sometimes third body before it needs to be sent so that the other team can then just like effortlessly pick you apart and find the open man. Honestly, my defensive player of the year rankings right now, Gobert 1, OG 2. And yeah. after that, I feel like there's a bit of a gulf before I would get to anyone else. Herb Jones has been pretty insane, but he doesn't play as many minutes as those other two guys. Uh, but yeah, I think those those have been the two best defenders in basketball so far this year. I'd agree. All right. Wait, do, you, do you want to uh, get to some positives that we didn't touch on last week? Do you just want to get out of here? How you no, feel? Yeah, we can, we can get to those on a later episode. I mean, I had actually meant to point out Gobert's defense on the last episode, but we were running short on time and I thought you'd make fun of me if I brought it up, but he, no, cause I think it's been, it's been great. He looks every bit He's as back. good as he Rudy did at, like in his peak in Utah. Uh, the, the, you know, whatever was going on with him at the you know beginning of last season, the first half of last season, basically, whether that was a physical thing, a mental thing, having to do with the adjustment, you know, to a new team, a new environment, whatever it was, that's like a distant memory right now. He is peak Gobert defensively right now. And Wolves are number one in the NBA in defensive rating. And they're like 12 points per 100 possessions better than league average. They are lapping the field defensively. Uh, that's what's powering their success. And then the other one I was just going to point out is like the Rockets might be good, might be decent at least. I think... I mean, yeah, the, the Lakers didn't have AD last night, but that game was a joke. It was out of hand by, like, the end of the first quarter. And, um, I mean, first of all, the Rockets' defense looks very competent for the first time that I can remember. Their offense, in terms of just, like, the structure and the process, the way that they're moving the ball, makes way more sense. Sangoon has been unbelievable. Jalen Green's been really good. Like, I think maybe they're actually building something there. And I think that they're over 500 for the first time in like three years right now. They're over 500 after starting 0-3. Like, they've won four in a row. They look good. Um, look, they added, you know, Fred Van Vliet, Dylan Brooks, and a good coach. You know, there are some adults in the room now, and this is exactly what they were hoping for, right? Like, that group last year, they start 0-3. I mean, there's just less talent in the room, but still, they start 0-3. Like, things start to spiral quickly. This year... They start 0-3, don't look particularly good, and yet bounce back in this way. This is exactly uh, what they were hoping for. And yeah, I'm not sure if they'll be good, but I think they'll at least be frisky, right? And like competitive and playing meaningful basketball much deeper into the year than they have in a while. And that's for where they're coming from. Like those baby steps are important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in terms of like positive stuff that we didn't get to last week, uh, that's th those were the two, I guess, that I wanted yeah. to hit on that it jumped out to me yeah did we talk scotty barnes last week or no 
Uh, maybe not. Did our positives, did we? Or maybe we did. But yeah, he, I mean, obviously his start to the season is one of them for me that I didn't think we talked about. But we can talk about that on a later show. And I'll, yeah. you know, I'm going to probably bring up that you laughed at me a year ago for saying I'd still take him over Evan Mobley. And <laughs> um, I want to talk. I want to talk about uh, the Pacers league leading offense at some point soon because it's been really fun to watch even if those numbers don't quite hold up it is a treat to watch what they're doing offensively right now we should definitely get to that in the next couple weeks and uh, and then yeah the Wolves defense which I know you wrote about in that piece I talked about earlier where we came up with our 10 big observations from the first two weeks was another one but again I think we can we can get to all those things in the coming episodes and weeks for now i guess uh, we can leave this here and uh get to a fan shout out wolf on i know you have one this week yeah i want to give a shout out to mario at the sonder cafe in toronto uh at dundas and shaw mario recognized my voice when i came in a few days ago with our colleague jonah bierenbaum and he said he used to be a frequent listener to our show listens to it less often now Used to be. Yeah, so I, I can't guarantee that he's going to be listening to the, to this episode. He said he still listens from time to time. But that basically since the, the Raptors had kind of faded from relevance, he'd gotten more into soccer. So didn't listen as much as he used to. But I still wanted to give Mario a shout out on the off chance that he is listening to this episode to let him know that we appreciate his, I guess, former patronage and hope that he will continue to listen in the future. Because, hey man, maybe the Raptors are on the rise here. Scotty Barnes, you know, making that third year leap. And uh, there are definitely some reasons to be excited about that team moving forward. But shout out to Mario. Scotty Barnes is going to bring Mario back to us. Book it. <laughs> I want to get, like, that's, I don't think ever happened to me before where somebody just recognizes my voice in public because it's not like, I'm not like you, Cash, where my face is plastered all over the Scores <laughs> YouTube page and people would recognize me to look at me. They, they got to recognize yeah. me from the... I don't know how you would describe my voice, the, you know, nasally Semitic tones of my voice. So I was going to say, yeah, to your point about like YouTube, the few times like when I've been around and people have recognized, usually it's because they've watched a score YouTube uh, video. But sometimes when they tell me, oh, like, you know, you're from the score YouTube, I also listen to the pod. But the one time someone strictly recognized me from voice is actually a really funny story. It was during a uh, co-ed league soccer game a few years ago and this one guy in the other team was chirping me and when i chirped back using language that i won't share on this program he ends up coming up to me after the game like oh you know whatever like oh good game competitive whatever and then says hey do you have a podcast i said yeah why he's like is it the scores nba podcast and i was like why he's like yeah he's like yeah well when you were talking shit it like i recognized your voice and i was like i'm pretty sure that's the guy from the score podcast i listened to so i guess did you call him a fugazi is that what gave it away no i didn't but yeah i just thought it was hilarious that he didn't recognize my voice until i started talking trash to him and i guess the tone started sounding familiar because he's just so used to me calling out the fugazis around the NBA. So anyway, yeah, I thought uh, your voice being recognized by Mario uh, just reminded me of the the one time that it's happened to me when someone recognized just my voice and uh, thought it would make for a funny story to wrap this episode. 
Absolutely. Of negativity, which obviously isn't actually an, a, an episode of negativity. It's just us talking about teams and stuff that players that have disappointed us, but all hope is not lost for those players and teams, except for Julius Randle in the Knicks. All right. Unless you got anything else to add, Wolfon. I don't. With that, what did you call it? Nasally Semitic <laughs> voice? That is, that is, that's one of the all-time lines in Pound the Rock history, and that's saying something. Let's get out of here. Let's hope Mario's listening and that he's back listening full-time again going forward. And uh, let's hope others reach out for their well-deserved shout-out for supporting the show. You can find Wolfon and myself on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Kashar. You can email us, joe.wolfon at thescore.com, joseph.cashardo at thescore.com. You can find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash. Maybe you can find me on an adult soccer field near you talking trash. Yeah, uh, yeah if you don't want to reach out to us on way. social media, just keep your ears peeled. Yes. And uh, accost At your us local in coffee shops and soccer fields. Yeah. All right. Let's get the hell out of here. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cashaw. Pound the Rock.